Welcome, kindred spirits. This is the History Chicks recap of the Netflix series and with an E, episode five. The episode is entitled Tightly Knotted to a Similar String. Here's the whole scenario as to Jane Eyre. Mr. Rochester and Jane are saying goodbye, and he says to Jane, I sometimes have a queer feeling with regard to you, especially when you're near to me, as now. It's as if I had a string somewhere under my left ribs, tightly and inextricably knotted to a similar string, situated in the corresponding quarter of your little frame. And if 200 miles or so of land come between us, I'm afraid that cord of communication will be snapped. And then I have a nervous notion I should take to bleeding inwardly. As for you, you'd forget me. Yeah. And you know what, Jane Eyre fans? They got engaged right afterward. Never fear. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Um, Thanks for that. Yes. So it's not talking about a tampon string? (laughs) I actually (laughs) was hoping that the bleeding inwardly is a coincidence. Um, I am thinking that they are sly dogs as they didn't include that part. Well, I, yeah. I hope it is not a tampon string. Yes. Well, given this particular episode, I would say it was intentional. I say they found that quote in Jane Eyre and they were doing a happy dance. Like, oh my gosh, we could use this. <laughs> like they met for shots after with the perfection of what they oh. have just chosen. Oh, absolutely. I um, I actually subtitled this one, Love. You use that word, but let me show you what it means. Oh, that's good. There are several times during this episode that I pointed at the screen and I said, okay, representation of true love. The different kinds of love there are. You know, different relationships have different kinds of love. And they seem to all be represented here. We're leaving out the obvious. This is an obvious reference to the separation between Anne and Diana about halfway in. You know, the drama, the tears. Okay. There's so many separations that happen in this. Yes, it's probably that one because that's the biggie. But there's so many other things. Ah, oh, this episode was perfection. I'm going to just gush. <laughs> Sorry. So this episode was directed by Patricia Rosema, who directed the Mansfield Park adaptation that I love that many Jane Austen fans super hate. But it doesn't matter, Patricia Rosema, because I'm on your side. I keep saying I liked it because I feel like that adaptation is Fanny Price plus Jane Austen, half and half. And I think that this adaptation of Anne of Green Gables is half Anne, the character, and half Maud, her author. If that just isn't perfect to have this director directing an episode, I, you know, it's just perfect. Also, she did Grey Gardens, if, if you're familiar with that, which is a story of two of Jackie Kennedy's relatives and their super dysfunctional lifestyle, starring Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange. I am not familiar with that one. At all. What's it called? Grey Gardens. It's the story of Big Edie and Little Edie, um, mm-hmm. Jackie Kennedy's cousin uh, and aunt or aunt. Hmm. I guess they would be aunts. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they basically lived as hoarding recluses for decades. Really? Oh, I might have to get my hands on that. So we've reached the cold open. It's winter, there is screaming, and there is also an inappropriately themed spelling bee. Here are the words, as Mr. Phillips is giving unfortunate googly eyes at Prissy Andrews in the back seat. Amorous, gorgeous, 
ostracize with a question mark. Gross. Haughty, callous, penitent, intentions, persevere, engagement. Excuse me while I vomit. (laughs) So uh, let's see. What should we say? Well, when he does say ostracize, Gilbert spells it with a Z. I know. I saw that. I was like, did he just say Z? Yeah, that was cute. I mean, authentic. Which led me to say, wait, isn't ostracize in Canada spelled with an S? But evidently not. No. Well, no, of course not. It's Gilbert spelling it. He's his best student, you know. So every time somebody gets something wrong, Mr. Phillips is a mess. He goes, oh, wrong. Like a coach when, like, you know these guys know how to field and then they drop the ball and it's like the Keystone Cops out there. Like, they mess (laughs) up their hair, but Mr. Phillips is not about to mess up his hair. It's all in his head, but that's how he's feeling. (laughs) and he's also wondering how to get prissy engaged in his eye conversation the only word that gets her from staring straight ahead and looking really uncomfortable is engagement and how is everyone missing this i guess it's super exciting to have boys v girls spelling tests maybe because there's a lot of noise and a lot of cheering and a lot of stuff going on so I'm guessing Prissy Andrews is 16, and I know, I know it is a regular old age for the time, but it is his student, and that just seems not good. So I looked up the average age of marriage in Canada this year, and it's 23.6, which is not 16. But I will tell you that almost 30% of brides were under 20. So nobody would bat an eye necessarily. It was a common enough thing. But I just am shocked that Mr. Phillips has received, at least not that we've seen, any blowback for his behavior. And that whole incident where the little encounter in the supply closet got out. There was a listener named Aaron who sent us that same question. Is he just going to get away with it because he's a man? And I unfortunately think the answer is yes. Yeah. I was actually waiting in in the uh, voiceover in my head. I was saying, can you spell pedophile? (laughs) That was in my head. There's so much that's gross. Because at the end, when Gilbert does mess up the word engagement, Mr. Mm -hmm. Phillips says, while looking into the eyes of his victim slash fiance, says... That is incorrect. And then under his breath, he says, the spelling, not the sentiment. I had to go back several times, but that's what he says. Yes. Let's move on to Gilbert. Gilbert says, he looks over and very graciously, good loser, says, congratulations, Anne. And then says, I should have added an E. Oh, sorry. I do that so many times in this. I won't do it because I know you don't like to hear it. So, you guys, he is paying attention that deeply. I want you to reach out your hand and feel that sweater. Do you know what that is? That is boyfriend material. (laughs) That is what I'm saying about Gilbert. And I uh, even nerded out. I wrote down some of the words on the chalkboard behind them. This is really, they're not playing around here. Plenipotentiary. Having full power to take independent action. Physicotheology. Yeah. Finding evidence for God in the functions of nature. Meteorological is the only one anyone probably knows ever. (laughs) Forecasting the weather. Yes, we know. We know. In the Midwest especially, we know. Latitudinous. Having breadth of ideas and interests. 
So even the prop guys have a little bit of fun with uh, associating the vocabulary words to the scene. Impressive. Okay, so did you see the Gilbert and Anne eye acting at the word callous? <laughs> Go back and look. All right, I will. Callous. And then they have a little exchange of I, accusatory slash mm-hmm type of conversation without saying a word. There is layer upon layer. <laughs> it is Do you think they are picking up on the grossness going on in the back of the room? I think they're probably honestly used to it. Oh, okay. Because I, I was reading, so. I guess in the book, it says something about that he's always in the back seat trying to help Prissy Andrews, who's preparing for the Queen's College exam, and mm -hmm. everyone else did what they liked, racing crickets down the aisle, drawing pictures on their slates, eating apples, blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of like uh, when your boss has a lunch meeting and all of a sudden the office is a little lighter, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's their, their day. They're like, don't disturb what's happening in the back, because then people, we have to work. So then we see several times Anne's crossing her arms over her stomach, Maybe, and we think, okay, she must be nervous over this uh, spelling test, but it turns out it might be something else. Ha, huh? stay tuned. So Diana looks at her friend and says, Anne, are you feeling all right? And so is that a little foreshadowing for what's going to happen later? Yes, because Anne shakes her head no, like something bad is going on. Like, I do not feel good. No. And then we go to our favorite opening theme song, which I actually, I'm sad to admit, I fast forwarded through for the first time. <laughs> and I said, I'm done talking about that. And it is a little much if you're binge watching. There's only so many times that you can see the opening sequence. And well, some series know that. And if they sense that you're binge watching, they'll cut the opening sequence out, it seems like. Well, I, on one of my devices, and I don't know if it's just device specific, or I can fast forward. Through, it like says skip intro. The button, mm. but it's not on every device. That, listen to me. I'm so I got devices in every room. It's not on every single one of them. So I don't know if it's just an update that that one got. I, I don't know. And I will say this before we get to it. I did check the subtitle settings and the subtitle settings are off. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm going crazy or not. Am I the only person that sees these? Because you said you weren't seeing them. Well, I said I didn't notice them. Oh, I see. They could wow. have entered hmm. my eyeball, but not my brain. <laughs> but I do have something to say about the opening anyway. And the reason why I'm skipping it is because I know this song. Because, you know, I'm now like the Tragically Hip's biggest fan. <laughs> okay, I've got a few years behind everybody else. But Ahead by a Century, which is the song, is from the 1996 Trouble at the Hen House album. <laughs> and it's actually an edited first verse. They took off the last line. That's when the hornet stung me and I had a feverish dream. With revenge and doubt, tonight we smoke them out. Hmm. Oh. I know. That's They cut that out of the song because that first couple lines is just perfect for this show. Yeah, I don't think Anne's got her lightsaber out, taking no. out the enemy. No, I don't think so. So the next scene, Anne is asleep up in that gable room, but suddenly she wakes up. Was it a nightmare? No, it was something else. And I, uh, uh, can she see what's happening in such a dark room? I, I, uh, wouldn't you think it was, I mean, pee? I, I don't know. Well, you'd see, there was light shining in through the window, like the moon. And it, when the moon reflects off all that snow that's out there, 
um, it is a little bit brighter. So maybe she just had enough light to see that there was like a stain in her sheets. Maybe. Oh, okay. Because in the dark, red equals black, if you ever noticed. So I wasn't sure. Yeah. Unless it's you have a little light and there's a contrast. But I did. I was like, oh, thank God you're underneath that coverlet, not on top of it. Oh, for wrecking purposes? Yeah. Because, man, I love that coverlet. I love it a lot. Have I gushed about it before? Yes, I have. Yes, you have. It is Amish auction handicraft season. Um mm-hmm down by my father-in-law where he lives, and you never know, because I got those Victorian patchwork quilts there. I beat out many ladies for that, by the way, so I'll keep an eye out for something very similar. (gasps) Would you, even if it's like a throw for my sofa? You know, you just never know what is going to emerge. I'll put a picture on our show notes of where I am right now in my little tent, (laughs) like fort. Um, I created this morning because I had a little extra time, and my favorite blanket is um, in this fort with me and it has surprise flamingos all over it. So I think I love the lace coverlet would be a nice, um, replacement maybe. I don't think you should use the lace coverlet for sound protection. Sound? Oh no, no, no. I mean, it's my favorite. I sleep with this blanket. It's my blankie. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I sleep under this blanket every night. Downstairs, there's panicked laundry doing and extreme fear. Evidently, Anne thinks she's dying. Uh, I don't know. Laundry laundry is not a quiet affair. Uh, she is <laughs> slamming things all over the place. The pump, the fire, the pouring of water, the gasping in panic. I'm telling you what, I'm surprised it took Marilla this long to come downstairs. You could not keep it on the DL in this house either. The washer and dryer are in a closet off the master bathroom. And I don't... You know what, though? If you can sneak past Mr. Graham who's a light sleeper, there's two big solid doors between you. I think you might be able to. If you make it into that room, I think you're okay. But there's just so much noise at Green Gables. And incidentally, my grocery store still carries that soap that she's using. That Fells Naphtha soap. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mine does too. Yep. Is that what that is? It's not the same formula because the one that Anne is using would have had paint thinner in it. Ooh. Which they disallowed later. The one, the current model does not have that, you know, actual naphtha in it anymore. Um, It's, you know, it'll tear up your hands. It's not good for, you know, (laughs) absorbing into your bloodstream or whatnot. So the new one, of course, with safety does not. But hers is the more powerful version with the solvent in it. So would this be your first instinct, surreptitious laundry? Mine would be screaming my head off for Marilla if I literally thought I was dying. I mean, if I if I didn't have an inkling what was happening, do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. is it because of where the blood's coming from? Maybe. I mean, she's freaking out. Clearly, she had no idea this was coming. She has no idea what it is. She's scared. And not only is she dying, but she's going to ruin the sheets, you know? Is she not confident that she has a home? I'm just wondering. Well, I think she's just panicked in general, and her first instinct is to take care of it on her own. Her first instinct isn't to go to somebody. It's to try and handle it herself, so maybe. And, and you didn't have to boil that water. Cold water works best. Everybody knows that, right? You're going to learn it in a minute, but I'm just saying, cold water. Well, I mean, I guess if you don't know, but so Morelli comes downstairs, which I, like I said, I'm surprised it took her so long. I don't know. I'm so sorry, says Anne. You're, you bet on the wrong horse. If you want to send me to the hospital, live the rest of my days, I completely understand. And then under her breath, she says, I never got to wear puff sleeves. <laughs> no. So she does think she's dying. 
Oh, I yeah. Guess. Oh, uh, yeah. And Marilla is not mad at all. I mean, she's super confused. Like, what are what do you have there? What is going on? And she gets it immediately. Good for her. And she says, you're not dying. Please plant some pink roses on my grave, says Anne. <laughs> <laughs> no. I love the way that Marilla describes it. She's like, Anne, you're not dying. You're in your, and then she pauses looking for the right word womanly flowering time it's perfectly normal and Anne doesn't like hang on to the perfectly normal words or she doesn't hang on to the you know poetical way that Marilla described it all she hears is woman I am not ready to be a woman I think we can condense Anne's response to when she says I hate this I hate this and like you speak the truth sister Uh uh-huh you speak the truth and I, kn- I know that the people who are loyal to the book or even the 80s version are not keen on this particular scene. But personally, I love it. I love this whole this whole storyline. Well, I do, too. And, you know, they did make her older and it's going to come up. And if this is a realistic, I mean, you know, maybe if Anne was 11, like in the book, um, it wouldn't have happened. Don't count on it, my friends, because Becca <laughs> Graham, seventh grade. Uh, yeah, not not fair, frankly. But anyway, you get two more years than I did. Anne. so how about that? So how, <laughs> so how did they deal with this situation? Honestly, this is no different than what you would have had to do when you were walking around the court of Marie Antoinette. You get cloths to pin to your undergarments that will need to be washed in first cold water and then hot water. Part of, okay, get this. This is another tie-in to an episode. Part of the Lizzie Borden trial. Lizzie Borden took an axe. We've covered her before. You can go back and listen to that one. The judge accused Lizzie, why were you going to the basement? And Lizzie Borden, cleverly or truthfully, you be the judge, said that she was putting some cloths down in the cold water to soak. Some cloths, wink, wink, to which the judge is like, oh, ah, never mind, never mind, ah. (laughs) And so I'm thinking that, quote, female trouble can still work on a boy authority figure. (laughs) so middle school ladies of america you'll have to tell me if a male teacher still automatically lets you go to the bathroom if you make a certain face i would think so isn't it interesting the things that just transcend time we see how uncomfortable matthew is and how fast he says the word barn and gets out of dodge (laughs) i know he was he was so worried he heard all this ruckus and he comes in and he's like what's going on what's going on and marilla is trying to get him out of the way she's like oh this is gonna add more to the situation And then he gets a peek at the sink and it's filled with, you know, you know, the blood. And he's like, oh, oh, barn. (laughs) He just grabs his coat and his hat and he's like out in his underwear. (laughs) He knows better than to stick around. You know, um, this is another great time. How many times does this happen that we get to give a plug for mom, the Museum of Menstruation? We'll give you a link in the show notes. You will love it because I'll tell you, when we started the show, some of the first questions had to do with how do women go to the bathroom and what did they do with that womanly flowering time? (laughs) Man. I know. Anne is given permission to stay home from school, but she wants to go. She wants to go. She wants to keep up with... The rest of the students. (laughs) Also very book accurate. There's a little tiny book accuracy for the book purists in this sea of non. Oh, there are so many taboos around the whole process. And that's one of the reasons why I just love that they wrote this scene in. I'm not kidding. 
to my mind, I guess, look at this, assuming you know nothing, I don't think that there was enough explanation. Kind of like Anne freaked out, as you do, but she accepted these vague answers. It's God's plan. It's a bad plan, by the way. And um, Marilla has a stack of cloths just like ready, left over, or what? No, I think they were, aren't they like the same kind she would use for bandages? I think Civil War... Because that's how they looked, like the, the same material, that same cotton. I think she probably had them in her medicine chest ready oh, for just for another purpose. Yeah, for more bleeding, from, but not necessarily from Anne. Okay, I see what you're saying. And there, I have to say, prop guys, come on. There is a lot of blood in that sink. That is too much. <laughs> I know. But... I know we have to be alarmed and we have to see it as if we're Matthew from across the room and we have to be like, neon. <laughs> but I think... Okay, we've seen enough. But yeah. uh, so have we? Have we seen Marilla give affection to Anne before? How, I mean, I know she hugged her this last time when when Anne ran home. She was sad about school, and she ran home into Marilla's arms. But Marilla took a second to respond to that. But has Marilla ever made a gesture herself first to Anne like this? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I, I can't. Nothing comes to mind. Interesting question. And it's almost a not, I mean, I don't mean it's a pleasant thing, but if you look at Marilla's face, it's almost like she's sort of mildly content about mm-hmm. the, like, permission the situation has given her to do it, kind of. Yeah. I mean, she's never lived with another woman since her own mother died. You know, she's relied on Rachel for that female companionship, but now she has a daughter so she can share everything she's learned. I think that gives her a bit of a thrill. It's a part of life. It's going to happen every single month. And Anne's like, every month for years? What the? You know, um, but being able to impart all that wisdom to a child, that's pretty powerful. I think you read her face right. I love that. I do love that. So at the Blythe's house, Gilbert is rushing around making a breakfast tray. Uh, incidentally, the Blythe's house looks a lot like my house in Rhode Island, um, but oh. without the giant barn on the right-hand side, we didn't have that. But otherwise, uh, especially in the snow, here's mm-hmm. the snow again, it looks a lot like it. So Gilbert is making toast by putting the bread directly on the hob, mm-hmm. uh, tea, I, and jelly, um, I'm assuming. I think yep. that's it. I don't think he's making eggs or anything. It's a very simple breakfast, and we don't realize who it's for. Um, really until he delivers it. It's a man in a bed. And when Gilbert comes out to the hall, he kind of um, checks a little when he hears the cough. We learned in episode two that his dad being sick is why they'd been out west for a year or so and why Gilbert is behind in Anne's class, even though he's older. In the books, he was supposed to be 13 to Anne's 11. So he, I guess, would be 15, right? If we're following the same, you know. Yeah, because he's never given an indication of how old he was. So he's used to the concept of coughing, obviously, but maybe it has a new, like, downhill type of sound in it, or the doctor has warned him about something, because he really, honestly, there's a moment of doubt, like, am I going to go? He does decide to go. He packs himself a sandwich and a little cloth and, you know, eats an apple for breakfast, and I have to tell you, Gilbert is such a good boy. I mean, this is a lot for him. He is Mm -hmm. such a manly little dude, and I found myself wishing that he had a brother or a sister. Which is really kind of making me <laughs> question that I have an only child. I mean, not really, but you know, it does make you think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot for him. And he just puts on this facade whenever anybody else is around that they would never know 
that this trauma is going on in his life. And do we know in this series what happened to Gilbert's mother? Because in the book, of course, she lives to act frosty to Anne after Mm -hmm. she rejects Gilbert and acts cold to him. You know, she's not in absence. She's fully angry at Anne for years. So, (laughs) yeah, you know what? I don't think they've explained mom. I mean, I I assume she's dead, but why? Hmm. Maybe it's just like, you know, sometimes you got to cut characters out of a movie to move the story along and to give Gilbert some pathos and some more manliness. I can see why they did it. I can see why they did it. But old Mrs. Gilbert Phantom, we salute you. (laughs) We know you exist, but not in this universe okay i want to point out a couple things um in that particular scene it shows should we be pointing out the love in this this is like a child's love that is being illustrated here you know the love a child has for his father and you know the attention that he's paying to him and i do want to say that every time you know we see the outside of the house and it's snowy it's dark it's like snowing it's you know there's clouds right so it adds a certain element of dismalness i guess but it's still you know very beautiful and i was kind of wondering why this director used that theme of i mean really the snow bookmarks between every single well not every single scene but a lot of scenes and i wonder if you know beautiful menace or something Mm -hmm. you know something that for the love to work against or whatever i don't know but we do catch a glimpse of papa's wicker and cane wheelchair so we know how serious it is and then we pan over to papa and he is not doing very well. He has really big, dark circles. He can hardly even breathe anymore. No, but he's at, he's nice. I mean, he's not like a cranky old man in bed. He's very nice to his son. He obviously loves him a great deal and hates that he's putting this burden on him. Gilbert had to come from somewhere. And Gilbert's good nature had to come from somewhere. I think that about my own son. He is so much like his dad. He is just a generous, kind person. And, you know, genetic or modeled behavior, I don't know. But um, so Gilbert really does take after the dad who's charming and we'll see his his charm later. But he's a nice man. And I feel very sad for him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Mrs. Andrews can't get this disease is what I'm saying. No, has to be a nice person. Oh, you know what? I was going to say this earlier. I popped in my head and then flew out, Um, you know, in the classroom when Prissy Andrews thinks that she might indeed be engaged. How would her mother feel about her marrying a school teacher? Well, I mean, here's, I told this to Aaron too, the listener that wrote in. I almost Mm -hmm. think after those rumors, as long as they got married, that closes the chapter on the rumors. I see. You know, she seems kind of a social climber. Oh. So I'm just curious. Well, in the books, Mr. Phillips only got that job because one of his uncles was a trustee. So maybe he comes from money. Oh. Uh, He's not a good teacher, but he might be a good uh, social catch. I don't know. Like in Survivor, he plays a good social game. (laughs) Not with the kids, clearly, but with the parents. Possibly. Oh, maybe. Hmm. Well, because it's obvious later he talks to Diana's mother. Oh, and quotes her verbatim. So you never know. You never know mm-hmm. what you're getting here. Yeah. So uh, Gilbert heads out, obviously, in the driving snow again. And we meet a lady. Who is this lady coming along? It's Mrs. Kincannon. Not a neighbor or friend just coming to make a call, but a paid employee or not paid. <laughs> Since Gilbert <laughs> explains about her wages being late, like, I'm so sorry. and But she is a nice she is such a nice lady, like a motherly lady. She really mm-hmm. likes him. And she's like, no, no worries. I know where you live. Yeah, I know. And she's worried about him going to school. You're going to be late to school, she says. 
I know. She's so worried. And watch his face. He is so smiley and charming to Mrs. Kincannon. And the second she turns away from him, look at his stressed out expression come back. Oh, yeah. I noticed that. Definitely. That's where I was like, oh, my goodness, this facade he's putting on. And so that just goes to show you that you never know what somebody's facing um, or dealing with at home. You just never know. Nope. I guess this is to emphasize his determination to get an education. It's a beautiful shot. There's a part where he's walking across a line of snow and there's a dark line of uh, trees in the background with one taller ghost tree right in the middle. It's just beautiful. Oh, I love these scenes because it's like a beautiful still life and they don't move the camera. The person or the it happens over and over in this particular episode the person or card or whatever goes right in front of the camera and off it's like it's like there was a painting and they walked in front of it yes exactly beautifully framed and it's just stunning very emotionate emotional (laughs) emote what's the word (laughs) emotional no emotive that's it Ah. yeah good word (laughs) wish i'd used it So Marilla and Mrs. Lynde are over at Mrs. Lynde's making cherry preserves and other things. I think they're probably making pie filling. I had a big problem with where did the cherries come from? Oh, I did too. I had a huge problem. And then I saw the lemons and I was like, lemons? So I did a little bit of research on it. And Sunkiss, you know, we know Sunkiss, right? It was a co-op organized in 1893 to market the fruits of California to the East Coast and deliver it by train. Well, that so. doesn't um, surprise me. In the books, there's everybody's always making lemon pie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're getting their lemons and they're getting their cherries. Because I was like, those are the freshest, those are the cherries we're getting now. You know, the leaves are still fresh on them when she's rinsing them off in the bowl. Yeah. I have to say, I it is a little too on the nose with the goopy red cherries when she says it was like something out of Shakespeare and she's digging around... <laughs> I'm like, really? Yes, it sure was. I mm-mm-mm. I don't know. I was too busy focused on those bowls because I want them so bad. Rachel's bowls were just stunning. And, and the other thing that caught my eye is how much time do these women spend cooking or prepping to cook sitting down? I never sit down when I cook. Can I be sitting down? <laughs> I don't even have a place to sit down in my kitchen. But... I think Chris and his chefs, I think they do prep sitting down. I, think, in fact, think they do prep watching movies. Really? Uh-huh. Huh. They have a bar height prep table and a bunch of bar stools with backs. And if you don't have to bustle around, like if you're making 20 trays of stuffed mushrooms, there's no sense standing up for it if you don't. I'm intrigued by this movie thing. So when they are cutting onions, say, is that when they watch like sappy movies that are going to make them cry? No. (laughs) These are the pirate kings. They're not watching any of that kind of stuff. Oh, I don't think I want to know what they're watching. What do they have like Fight Club on a loop or something? (laughs) I don't know. I know they have Netflix. I don't know. Uh, Okay. So yes, cherries and apples making pie filling. Uh, I'm okay with the apples. I learned from Ramona Quimby, among other people, that you can leave apples in the basement a long time as long as nobody takes one bite out of all of them. That's right. (laughs) So my favorite line for this episode comes in this scene. Right now, they had a conversation about Matthew. Mrs. Lynde is so full of joy. And she says, you may not see him for a week. And Marilla says, if you see a suspicious character foraging in your garden, please feed him some supper. I know. I laughed out loud on that one too, but it wasn't my favorite. 
So the ladies are talking frankly, frankly, about their periods. I'd rather be pregnant than menstruating, says Mrs. Lind. And, of course, Marilla answers, that explains all the children. And they have just tickled themselves to the point where they have to stop working. But that's girlfriend love right there. What's going on at that table? Because, you know, it could be a very sensitive subject for both of them. I'm sure Rachel gets a lot of 10 children. My goodness. And, you know, Marilla never had children. She get, We know she gets a lot of uh, unmarried woman comments. So anybody else saying these things wouldn't have worked. Only two people that love each other, like these two girlfriends do, can get away with it. I'm going to call this a behavior cut because what you move from is ladies discussing lady problems to girls back in the clubhouse at school discussing lady problems in a way that reminds me so much of the 70s classic, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, that if you haven't read it, number one, fan yourself. I'm going to fan myself. And number two, (laughs) you should go read it. And it, it it was outdated when I read it. They're still talking about putting the pads on sanitary belts and whatnot, but it is, man. Oh. Oh, that was, I have it in my notes. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. <laughs> it's exactly the same. And I'm wondering if the producer, Beckett, haha, my second Ooh. use of somebody else as Beckett, um, is I about our age, I'm thinking. I know the directors usually are around our age. So I'm wondering if <laughs> it is like secret homage to our Gen X age group. Oh, maybe. So Josie Pye says, I feel mature. I'm not a little girl anymore. And that's noticeable. My bosoms are growing. Do you remember that uh, chant that they did in that, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. We must, we must, we must. That one. Increase our bust. The bigger, the better, the tighter, the sweater, the boys depend on us. Oh, I never remember the last part. That was great. Yeah. Super inappropriate and (laughs) non-PC. Let's just go with that. So, Anne, here's the word bosoms, and it starts freaking out again. She says, yet another reason why this is inexplicable. See, Josie Pye had a positive thing. You know, I'm not a little girl. I feel mature. Um, Diana says... My father has started opening the door for me. I think that's sweet. It is sweet. The girls are becoming young ladies. And in this society, Victorian, you treat young ladies differently with a little bit more deference. If you're a man, there is a certain um, level of courtesy that has to start emerging. And the papas are modeling the way. And I think that's kind of neat. Now, Ruby, of course, obviously (laughs) left behind. She is super sad for about a minute. The girls conclude that... It's shameful and it's unmentionable. It's a secret. And of course, Josie Pye has to say, how come you never understand anything, to Anne? Oh, <laughs> we can create a whole person, says Anne. Isn't that amazing? And they're just like, why are you like this? Uh, yeah, do- well, Marilla must have given her the what for once the camera was off and explained it to her a little bit better. Yeah, we didn't see her explain that, but clearly... She did, or else how would Anne know that this is how things happen? I wonder if she ever took care of the whole mouse um, misconception while she was at it. Oh, oh, I don't know. I mean, if you're going to lay down not. some shocking lines, you might as well go with this. <laughs> there are no mice. <laughs> That's right. You can you can be on a theme here and just get all the bases covered and get it over with. Although, as a parent, I'm going to tell you, you got to start earlier than 13. Oh, yeah. It's too late oh, now. My. Oh, I know. So do the boys have to go through anything like this? Nope. Ladies, they are behind you right now. The 13-year-old boys are not. They do have their own things to go through, um, but not those boys beating sticks on the outside. I 
<laughs> I know the girls are inside having this mature conversation about womanly things and the boys are outside just, you know, beating the heck out of a stump with other sticks. They do have other challenges to overcome and um I honestly think that boys don't get as much support for their growing up problems as girls do, honestly. I mean, it almost seems like boys have a harder road to hope because there's not as much support for their feelings, kind of. Oh, maybe. Do you think? I have two sons and I haven't really thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) So there's really no emotional support in this house. (laughs) Okay, well, there you go. A little bit of evidence for you. Well, Tilly Bolter puts the fear into Anne. Oh, does she ever. About having an accident. And it panics Anne for the rest of the day. Ruby's words. Everybody saw. (laughs) Yeah. So we go back to school. We are in geography class, which Mr. Phillips is handling with his usual amount of tact, whatever. Gilbert gets credit for knowing four things total. That's what a real student looks like because he knew four things. Oh, he was so clever. That's what Mr. Phillips said. And that's what Ruby said. Isn't he clever? Ah. So he calls on Anne, who's sort of still into the lunchtime conversation about an accident. Obviously, you see by the placement of her hands, she's hoping to conceal any such accident, which isn't there. She doesn't have one. But uh, Mr. Phillips is very sensitive. Could you not hear me sometime today? You know, obviously (laughs) not helping her out at all. She literally can't answer. I assume she didn't answer it at all. No, I don't think she did, because later. <laughs> well, and now they're in the cloakroom. Oh, we're not later, right now. <laughs> yeah, right now. <laughs> so right now we're in the cloakroom, and Gilbert tells Anne a mnemonic device for remembering the provinces. Nice boys never say people eat insects. New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island. Those are Canadian maritime provinces. And Which is the question she had been asked at the board, and just froze up. Anne is, tell Gilbert, blah, 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 blah. Like, oh, when he's right there, I hate that so much. I honestly never even bought this feud in the book. And now I'm still not buying it. Like, let it go, girl, let it go. But Gilbert is sort of, I mean, he's really nice. He says, mnemonic is spelled with an M. Not that you need my help. Have a good weekend. And he beams in Diana's face. It's like the angels are singing. (laughs) Gilbert is so popular at the school. (laughs) Well, you know, his wording, um, you know, when Anne talks to him through Diana, she says, tell him I don't need his help. And then Gilbert says, tell me yourself. And she says, I think I just did, which is exactly what he said when she hit him over the head with the slate. Right. Because she had said, don't talk to me and smack. And then I think you just did. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's a little bit of clever writing right there. So we're at back at Green Gables and Marilla is sewing in her high-heeled boots with her foot treadle sewing machine. These are pretty new. I think they have only really been in common use for, I would say, less than 20 years. I do remember when Ma and Laura Ingalls got a hold of one in the 1880s. It was a giant deal. Oh, yeah. Uh, And it's less a giant deal now. It's more of a household appliance, but still these things haven't been around for very long. But anyway, Marilla is sewing um, sort of happily, honestly. Again, I say, if she'd only had some podcasts, she would be 
so much better <laughs> off. Like Craft Lit, the podcast for people who, you know, need to work with their hands. I know there's a lot of sewing and quilting and handicraft podcasts out there. Craft Lit is very cool because they uh, go through classic literature and they read it to you while you're working. I love that. Craft Lit, I'll put a link on the show notes. Yeah, they've been, I mean, that's an old podcast. I want to say that's a 15-year-old podcast. Oh, is it done? No, no, no. It's continuing. It's just one of the old guard. It's been around a long time. Oh, wow. So Anne comes in. Woo, and she has PMS. Whoa, Nellie. <laughs> I mean, wow. Um, did you speak to Diana? Says Marilla, hopefully, hoping that we've smoothed some of the edges. And Anne is like, obviously, I did. Ah! I speak to Diana every day, blah, blah, blah. And I have to tell you, any other mother in Avonlea would have had that belt out. And Marilla is just like, <laughs> F you then. Which just cracks me up. She just turns around like, not even going to touch this. Whatever. I don't even care. Do not let the door hit you. She doesn't even react. It's so funny. No. Obviously, it's Saturday. We're getting a rare view of unbraided Anne hair at the table. Anne does not feel good. I feel you, girl. I feel you. But Marilla gets that it's only partly physical. And the invitation to the fateful tea party is issued to Diana and party planning ensues, which I really like. And <laughs> growing up is certainly a trial by fire. Says I know. And she just winds it. She's got her head in her hand and she's just like, growing up is certainly a trial by fire. <laughs> but then, you know, as soon as that invitation is offered, you know, she tries to get puffy sleeves. Oh, it would be so delightful if I had a dress with puffy sleeves to wear. She knows she's not going to get it. So she says, you know what? I think I might like being grown up after all. So just like not even a minute before she was complaining about being a grown up. And now she's suddenly seeing the positive sides. I know. She said a grown up tea is one of my ideas of heavenly bliss. I want to call your attention to the fact that Matthew says pretty much his only line here. Uh, the puffy sleeve conversation is going on where Marilla is like, no, we're not going to get you a new dress before the party. You know, just like we all do Wear the freaking t-shirt you have or whatever <laughs> um matthew says she's been longing for those ever since we met and gave her a little look i know and i think it is a mr barry holding the door mm -hmm. moment mm -hmm. the dad realizing that his little girl done all grown up mm -hmm. kind of i think it so yeah and also it's such a nice um point that the guy doesn't say much but he has been paying attention. You know, they were kindred spirits from the cart ride back to Green Gables. So he's been paying attention. He adores her so much. That's just another example of it. I, You know, I don't want to say they're battle royaling it all over the place, but they're narfing at each other, Anne and Marilla. But party planning, you know, that what what is for, for tea? You know, okay, so you've got a yellow crock of preserves. I'm assuming the famous plum preserves from the book, but we don't say that. Fruitcake. <laughs> Cookies and snaps. I guess ginger snaps don't count as cookies. I know. I'm confusicus about that. They're very special cookies, though. They are my favorite. I do. I like them, but only kind of in the winter with uh, tea or something. It's good. I like them in the summer with ice cream. Oh, and I'm not an ice cream person, so. Oh, well, sorbet. <laughs> we also have the famous raspberry cordial. Mm -hmm. uh, on offer and we also have sitting in the parlor on offer which if you've read any Laura Ingalls Wilder even Almanzo and his brothers and sisters from a fancy house were not allowed to set foot in the freaking parlor oh yeah no the, the parlor is for nice it is not for kids 
Uh, Marilla is very satisfied with her distraction. I love her smile. She has a little like, well, then how about me with this idea? I know. Well, she this whole thing, she's getting to be more motherly. You know, she's getting to show more motherly love and affection in, you know, in physical ways, not just hugging her and, you know, giving her a kiss or whatever, but she can demonstrate it. So Anne catches Matthew coming out of her room, but she doesn't notice anything amiss because she's just too happy. He tries to explain. I think there was a draft. She cannot hear you, dude. She cannot hear you. (laughs) Well, she's in super manic mode. Like she's uh, dancey dance happy, flinging handkerchiefs over her head, having Diana to tea, having Diana to tea. You know, she doesn't (laughs) like he could have said nothing, anything doesn't even matter. Yeah. So Matthew's going off someplace and all day someplace. And he says to young Jerry, just do whatever needs done. And I love a non-micromanaging boss like that. And he's my <laughs> hero. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, are we getting a little hint that maybe Jerry's becoming a man now too? Like, okay, I trust you to know whatever it is. Just help Marilla out and you know what to do. Yeah. Well, he's Jerry's been in the house long enough. He should know these things. So Anne is tablescaping, a word I absolutely hate by the way and practicing her tea party manners um <laughs> i have to say it's the same way she practiced her going to school manners and that didn't work out so well <laughs> well the ribbon's back the famous ribbon um and she does make a nice looking table i have to give her some credit all her foliage and her berries and the the levels of cookie up high uh-huh. down low It looks nice. It looks nice. And so she is practicing her teapot work and we get another what I call a traveling cut. So we've moved to Gilbert's house through the power of activated teapot power. (laughs) Because now we're at Gilbert's house through the pour. I love that. So Anne starts to pour it. And then when it comes down, you realize, oh, no, it's somebody else. It's so good. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, that is great. He's pouring tea for both him and his father. And he's going to sit down with him bedside and he picks up a book and his dad asks him to read his favorite song of the open road by Walt Whitman, which is such a perfect guy to, I mean, this poem that they pick his favorite. I mean, Walt Whitman himself is very much like these people, you know, like Gilbert and his dad, they're very, um, glass half full. Let's be cheerful. Let's look at the world in a, you know, in a positive light kind of people, I thought this was a perfect poem. I want to read you the part that acts sort of as a voiceover for the next scene, which I've never seen this show do before, where Gilbert's audio is going over Matthew's action. Mm -hmm. Um, The first three lines, which you do hear, are, Afoot and lighthearted, I take to the open road, healthy, free, the world before me, the long brown path before me, leading wherever I choose. And then the last paragraph... Um, that you don't hear, but it's the last paragraph of Mr. Blythe's favorite poem says, and keep in mind, enfant, I don't have subtitles. It means child. Mon enfant, I give you my hand. I give you my love, more precious than money. I give you myself before preaching or law. Will you give me yourself? Will you come travel with me? Shall we stick by each other as long as we live? He's so delighted Gilbert can hang out with him for the day. Um, please sit by me and read my favorite. I'm so happy to see you. I'm glad it's Saturday. So there is some fatherly love for you. Ah, lovely. And another book for um, our reading list, Leaves of Grass, published in 1856. But it's not Anne's reading. No, but it's related to the show. Maybe I'll put it in parentheses. (laughs) And you know what else? There's also, it was very entertaining on schmoops.com. 
um, an analysis of the poem as well as an introduction to Walt Whitman. And if you're this kind of person, you will love Walt Whitman. So I'll put a link to Schmoops for you for that. Now, just under that voiceover that we talked about from Gilbert, uh, is that an advertising cart for Smith Hardware? <laughs> There's nothing in it. It's like the Oscar Mayer Wiener car, 1896. <laughs> to which I say, did you know you have to have a degree to drive the Wienermobile, by the way, in marketing? I believe it. It's a promotional tool. It is no joke. Uh, that's amazing. Well, anyway, I don't I don't know. Maybe they did. I wouldn't imagine in a small town like Carmody they would need it. I mean, pretty much how many hardware stores are there? I don't know. Maybe that it goes other places like the big cities. I don't know. All over town, all over the countryside. I got distracted by it. There's no there's no things in it. It's not a delivery van. It's just got a sign on the back. I just found that very strange. But anyway, distraction. Matthew, uh, so he's at Carmody. And he passes the general store, and he goes to a fancy one, La Rue Aubert. Finest fashions, fabrics, and fittings. Oh, my. He has a false start. He is not in a good place. He's like a very uncomfortable guy at Victoria's Secret. He's looking around, and in his face, is like, can't, can't. <laughs> he he is very uncomfortable. Um, and when a very pretty and nice assistant comes up to help him, his mind kind of melts, and he he's like, "Never mind, never mind," and he gets out. <laughs> and he breathes the crisp, cold air of freedom. Oh <laughs> my god! <laughs> and he's instantly seen as an easy mark by the local merchants who smell his desperation. I think. Um, in the book, he buys a rake and a whole bunch of bad sugar. And in the series, of course, he ends up buying boots and boot polish, but it's the same basic principle. Like, okay, I guess I'm going to buy some boots or whatever. It's so hilarious. Yeah. I loved his face when he spotted the corset. I think that was what did it. It wasn't, he didn't even get to the sales clerk. <laughs> he's like, saw the corset and he's like, I don't belong here. <laughs> Not at all. That's a lady problem thing. I don't That's get right. it. And he didn't even appreciate the fine alliteration on the sign, you know, the finest fashions, fabrics, and fittings. Although, speaking of alliteration, there were flowers everywhere, and I don't know where those flowers came from. Another greenhouse, I guess. Somebody's making so much money in this town on flowers. <laughs> That's true. But it was a, such a pretty store, wasn't it? It was very nice, yes. So over at Green Gables, Anne and Diana are formal grown-up tea ladies. I trust your families well. Oh, thank you so much. Let me take your coat and hat. Your table is exquisite. I mean, they are just cracking me up. <laughs> but that table, I mean, you had just talked about how gorgeous it was, but she did such a good job. I actually, the first time I saw it, I thought, Beckett would do that. Because it's just going outside and get, getting what was ever available, you know, just like you would in the summertime. So now she's got lots of evergreens and some uh, branches of rose hips and some dried flowers. And she made such a lovely arrangement. It's kind of casually spilling out of the bowl. It was really pretty. And that china, did you see the china? Uh, the red and white? Yeah. I, yeah, I loved it. Well, it wasn't just a teapot. It, I mean, she had the whole set. So I don't know what it was. I tried to look it up, but I'm not very good at that. It was like a twall kind of scene. And I don't even know. What, this is how bad I am at this. I don't even know what that's called on China. Well, we might get a better look at it because it's um, all the cups are hanging in the kitchen. If we ever get a good shot, they're all hanging on little hooks in that right to the right of the fire. So Anne is in the pantry where there are too many comedically red 
unlabeled things for me mm. with dust on them. <laughs> uh, I'm just like, really with this? Uh, do we see the real cordial bottle here? We, I don't think so because in the book, frankly, it's in another room entirely. Marilla told her it was in the pantry and it was really on the shelf in the parlor. So that mm. could be where it is. I'm, I'm surprised also what with all the cleaning that goes on in this house that these bottles are so dusty. Thank you. I thought the same thing because she picked it up and once Anne decides which one she's convinced is the raspberry cordial, she dusted it off. And I'm like, why is there dust there? Marilla should have taken care of that. It's kind of like, you know, in your freezer, like you eat something for dinner and then you have leftover sauce or whatever. And so you put it in a container and you don't label it and you put it in the freezer. <laughs> and then later you're like, is this tomato sauce? What What is this? Is this, you know, cherry juice? I don't know. Well, coming from a house... Uh, where there is a professional chef, you have to label everything that you put <laughs> in the freezer. So all of our stuff has not only what it is, but the date, because that's a habit you get into at work. I mean, almost every chef you will ever see will have a Sharpie. There's actually a pocket for a Sharpie in most chef coats in on one of the arms. Really? Uh-huh. You'll, uh, <laughs> if you ever see a chef coat, there's a there's a tiny little pocket, usually on the left shoulder, because most people are, you know, right-handed, that is just enough to stick a little Sharpie down in. That is a requirement almost everywhere that you label all your leftovers. Huh. Well, that's good. So Matthew tries again. He comes out. He's laden down with his unwanted purchases that he has just been tricked into making and passes a supremely non-assortive chestnut seller who is never going to make it if he doesn't open his face <laughs> and accost the passersby. Just all you have to say is chestnuts or something. <gasps> I know you're an extra and they don't want to pay you scale, but come on. Please <laughs> make eye contact. Yeah. Come on. Anyway, back again at the fancy store. The assistant is so polite. She, her charm is really upsetting him. I feel <laughs> bad, but she's really being very friendly. Vivian, evidently her name is. Um... So we see the boss through a veil of gauze first. It's, it's, who is it? It's Jeannie says Matthew. Matthew Cuthbert, she says. And there is some eye acting here that I am going to call electricity. I know. Total electricity. As a matter of fact, in my head, I heard Jenny. Oh. <laughs> you know, like in Forrest Gump. <laughs> no. But I'm like, no, it's Jeannie. It's Jeannie. <laughs> yeah. Very electric. I'm so, again, this is not in the books, but oh my goodness. I love this scene. So much. So Anne and Diana are fully into the cordial. Of course, Diana speaks French, even though she can't read English out loud for doodly squat. Reading English out loud isn't going to help her when she goes to French boarding school. Is finishing school real school? That's what I would like to know. Well. Probably depends on the lifestyle that you are facing, right? If you're going to be a farmer's wife, finishing school is not real school. Similarly, if you're going to be an ambassador's wife, going to eighth grade school at Green Gables is not going to help you. I guess it just yeah. depends on what you're being prepared for. Very true. <laughs> so Anne says, this seems to be a different cordial. Oh, is it? Mm. So three tiny glasses in and it is super confession time. I love being a woman, says Anne. Oh, bosoms, bosoms, bosoms. Ladies, eat something. <laughs> Have a glass of water. <laughs> Slow it down, laugh factories. <laughs> no one told him to have a glass of water between each glass of raspberry cordial. Oh, my gosh. And, of course, you'll notice the biggest difference from the book, of course, is that Anne is drunk, too. Right. Book Anne is too busy getting the food and the tea and making sure everything's proper and the napkins and blah, blah, blah. So book Anne, who also has a cold and can't smell the cordial, has no idea 
why Diana is acting so weird. Um, mm-hmm. Series Anne is just fully invested in emptying the bottle. A bright red drink, which she carries on about. She's like, bright red drinks taste twice as good as any other color. And in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, bright red liquids. It's like a theme. Oh, no. <laughs> I had a much more innocent and not... Um, intellectual response to this when she said bright red drinks just taste better and i'm thinking you are just like all the kids that insist in this house that the blue otter pops taste way better than the rest of them (laughs) and they are all the same sugar water right yeah well they're having to drink only that because Anne forgot the tea oh i something they discovered in their like you know giggly drunkenness I forgot the tea. <laughs> bosoms. <laughs> I know the word bosoms is just delightful. Let's go back to a calmer environment. Matthew is in <laughs> consultation with Miss Jeannie over a dress for Anne. And he, you know, Matthew tries to explain Anne and he does a pretty good job. She has romantic notions. She loves nature, trees, a certain type of sleeve with a air, he says, on the sides. <laughs> He's like, he knows the word. Anne has said it a bajillion times, but he can't like form it. He can't say puffy sleeves. So he's just like making motions, like making this like round thing on his shoulder. And And when she says the words puffed sleeves, he's so relieved. Like, it's almost like he didn't feel authorized to know that they're called puff sleeves. He didn't want to presume in case he got it wrong or something. Uh, But he's thought of everything. He has thought of everything. And he brought one of Anne's dresses for size, which is pretty forward thinking of him. Um, Although I hope he did get the one she wasn't planning to wear because she only has two. (laughs) Yeah. He he, uh, hands it to her and uh, Jeannie kind of opens it up to take a look at it. And she says, well, I can see why she's longing for the latest fashions. Marilla was always so practical. Mystery Jeannie knows Marilla. Enough to mm-hmm. say Marilla like that, not Miss Marilla mm-hmm. or Miss Cuthbert or your sister. Mm-hmm. She knows her enough to say she was always, mm-hmm. always a practical person. Who is Miss Jeannie? Interesting. So this dress will be Anne's dream come true. And I'll give you the old friend discount, she says. No, this is like old friend love. So he's not the most gracious invitation acceptor, but he does get invited to tea. Uh, very well. Much obliged, he says. You're like, come on. <laughs> you really have to twist his arm to go any place, I think. Any place different. Like, he'll go to the barn in a heartbeat. <laughs> Probably the hardware store, the feed store. He's all over those places. I don't really have. There's just a little tiny scene where Diana and Anne have gotten to the exhilarated and daring stage of drunkenness. This is when, uh, if you're anywhere else, you maybe get in a fountain. Um, you stand on a table and dance. This is where they are. But all you see is one, two, three, and then they burst in somewhere. Oh, no. What is happening? We don't know. If I have one criticism of this particular episode, it's the filter that they use to indicate that the girls are drunk. It's kind of blurry around the edges. And it makes you dizzy, which I get it. It's supposed to make you feel like you're drunk. Ha ha, got it. But I thought it was used a little too heavily. If I had if I had one criticism, but it isn't even worth taking a point off. <laughs> okay, well, we don't know what they've got planned. We don't really know. But we're back at Jeannie's, Jeannie's residence, where they're having tea. And um, they have a little conversation. We get to see a little more of their background. Miss Jeannie says, it must be nice for Anne to talk so much. You barely have to say a word. Must be heaven. 
But you make yourself known, says Janie, and his little smile. Ah! It's so good. I agree. And then Janie says, you once left a little something on my desk at school. And she still has it in a prominent location. And he looks like, I don't know what you're talking about, but there's no way he forgot this. He's just pretending. He remembers. Um, Look at his face. He remembers. He just doesn't want to say. I think he's trying to pretend he doesn't remember, but obviously because there's a flashback scene to when they were in school. And Matthew is kind of beat up on his face, which has me concerned like I was it the boy not from his father was my first I thought. know if we learn something dark about Marilla and Matthew's father in season two I'm gonna remember this moment yeah but there's something different about Matthew because he's kind of being ostracized Zed <laughs> you know, like, right here, give that word um by the boys who are playing uh marbles or jacks I didn't notice the, yeah I didn't either on the floor but the, all the boys are circled up and Matthew's kind of sitting by himself and he's young. He's, he is about Jerry's age and he's just sitting there by himself watching the girls. And he sees one particular girl who's kind of giving him the eye and that's Jeannie. And she's talking about sewing and how much she loves to sew. And um, the next thing you see is he's leaving a button for her, like on her inkwell, Mm -hmm. but um, nobody is around. He just like, mysteriously leaves it there and goes off. I am so touched. He leaves her this button and you can really sense by this little actor's performance how much courage he has saved up to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And this looks like the early 1860s to me just due to her hairstyle and her neckline of her dress. Um, So we're, you know, maybe just pre... The the Civil War wouldn't necessarily have touched them in Canada, but just for for a cultural reference, we're just before the Civil War. I think we saw uh, Mary Todd Lincoln have that same hairstyle. Yep. Such a pretty girl. Such a beautifully acted young Matthew. I, I am so impressed by this thing. And I just want to remember that Matthew was beaten up. So I don't know if it was school uh, or home life. I, I have another theory about the home life. It'll come up later. So anyway, we come back to the present day. We're still in Jeannie's um, residence. She still has that button and we hear a little more history between them. It wasn't long after that that you left school. And then she says, we were all so sorry when your brother passed. And Matthew's face is so full of like regret. It's something else. It's not just grief. And he he's honestly crying. Do you see his tears? Mm-hmm. Let me ask you something, all of you, <laughs> just Susan, because I'm talking right now. But let me ask all of you, do you think Michael, the brother, might have committed suicide? I'm serious. Oh. His death seems to have changed both Marilla and Matthew's lives to just this extreme. I just, like It was almost like there's something shameful or darker about Matthew's death where he didn't just die. Yeah, Michael's death. Yeah, I th- I thought the same thing. But when I saw those scabs on little Matthew's face, I thought, oh, my goodness. I wonder if something the father did caused Michael to die. Okay. I We're kind of thinking of the same, like, something dire mm-hmm. that is not, you know, natural viruses and bacteria. So his reaction, which is, you know, he shuts down, that causes him to button back up and his reaction kind of startles Jeannie. Um, the formality kills me. She can't just ask, what's the matter? What happened? She's constrained by 
propriety that she can't go into it. And he's polite enough and, you know, excuses himself. But it's obvious that the confession, you know, electricity time is at an end. Mm-hmm. And it's very- and she is she is so desperately trying to get some type of a reaction out of him about seeing her again. Yeah, You know, she's giving him all these opening lines about when they could possibly meet up again. And he says nothing mm. at all. I mean, he just quickly gets out of there and, you know, he's so overcome with emotion. He just doesn't know what to do. Pretty much is the way he operates, right? Outside, so. he sort of is broken and he has this heart spasm. And I would say, yes, a physical one and an emotional one, I'd say. <laughs> so is it all tied up with Jeannie? It's tied up with Michael, the brother, we know, because he talks about it later. He starts you know, thinking about this, really, I mean, it gets to him all the rest of the day. So you see it affect him a little bit. No, a lot of it. And I wonder if he just, you know, thought about, we don't know because it's not in the book and it wasn't in the 80s version either. You know, we don't know what the relationship was like and if he thought about her, you know, all these years. So we're back at Mrs. Lynn's. We open on it. Um, some beautiful green tomato pickles, by the way. Um, <laughs> they were so beautiful. I had to pause it and look up tomato. Uh, it was green tomato, pickled green tomatoes recipes. And I found four on the same site that looked really good. So I'll put a link to that on the show notes. Yeah, that's how good they looked. It's so pretty. This show is so pretty. Okay, I'm done gushing. Well, and I excused the green tomato pickles. I excuse them because maybe they're just making room in the pantry or sorting things because you make green tomatoes with the tomatoes that aren't going to ripen in time for you to get them off the vine before the frost. Right. So that would have been September or August. Mm-hmm. That's true. So maybe they're just making room. I don't know. I'm already, but I'm still thinking, you know, train, you know, produce by train. And green tomatoes were like a thing, you know, you ate them that way. It wasn't like... You ate them that way because you had no other choice. Right. But you ate them that way. So they there was a market for them. So maybe they were from California, too. <laughs> Marilla and Mrs. Linda are talking about this and that. And how did you ever manage to have 10 children? And then Marilla thinks, oh, she sees how. Because Thomas walks in. <laughs> he <laughs> is, he's you know, he's so adorable. And Mrs. Linda and Thomas are adorable together. He's so happy to see her and he gives her a big hug and how about a little lick which has a little innuendo that I'm not entirely sure it had a lot of innuendo they were kind of flirting and you know giving each other love eyes oh yeah there was a lot of innuendo there so Marilla is kind of smiling kind of shyly like oh my well now I see how the children came and then Rachel says at this point it's all about managing expectations which is sort of a bummer I know. Uh, Rachel is such a realist. It's like, oh, he wanted a little loving. He wasn't going to get it, but I'll give him a little verbal loving. How about that? Yeah, and Marilla looks disappointed. If you look at her face, like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Mrs. Lynn even spanks him on the booty, right? Yeah. On his way out the door. You shoo and go find fan for yourself, I think is what she says. They talk about Anne and her dinner party. How do you think it's going? The grown-up ladies' tea party. And Marilla says, I'm sure it's a very dignified affair. Well, the next scene proves I'm sure it's not. (laughs) They burst out of the closet wearing corsets over their clothes like Victorian Madonnas, um, ordering, notably, an imaginary Jerry around. You know, it's so funny when you just said that. That hadn't occurred to me, but... You know, like a version just like popped into my head because 
if you played like a virgin over that scene, it would work because they're like rolling around on the bed and just acting goofy. I mean, it looked just like that MTV Music Awards when she did that the first time we saw her. Rolling around on the ground. Yeah, back in the olden days. And, you know, we were also shocked by it. Oh, no. There's a bad sign because singing is the stage of drunkenness you get right before barfing. (laughs) And they're singing Beautiful Dreamer by Stephen Foster. Oh, it's all fun and games, isn't it? Until you see upside down Mrs. Barry in the doorway. And I actually think there was an implied record scratch because there was a space for one. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That song was actually published in 1864. Because I'm thinking it was like, you know, a newer song like Bing Crosby, I think, is who I imagine singing it. Maybe somebody else. I'm not sure. But 1864, that's been around a long time. Yeah, and most people would have learned their songs from sheet music, of course. (laughs) I would have learned no songs. (laughs) (laughs) So downstairs, the girls are standing in front of a very angry Mrs. Berry. I say standing. They're kind of weaving around. Uh, (laughs) Oh, teetotalers, teetotalers. Mrs. Berry is very unhappy with A, the drunken state of her daughter, and B, the fact that Marilla had wine in her house at all, which really is none of your business, really. <laughs> but evidently, the minister, the minister we don't like or approve of, disapproves of having current wine in the house, even medicinally, and Marilla had thought she threw it all away. Marilla does take public blame for this mm-hmm. being her fault for having the bottle. I don't know. I don't remember if in the book she takes the blame. Publicly, I think she tells Anne that it was her fault for telling her where the wrong bottle was. Um, I thought it was public in the book, so we're torn on that one. No, I don't know. I don't really remember. I honestly don't remember. Yeah, I don't either. Now, yeah, it's not like one of those I can say for absolute certain. But yeah. So, Mrs. Barry, the mother who's going to send Diana to finishing school, is not playing this, uh, no matter whose fault it is. She doesn't care. You are not a fit little girl to associate with my Diana. Oh, no, the judgment we feared at that audition is coming down now, isn't it? So not only can Diana never come over here to this den of iniquity (laughs) again, um, she can't even associate at school. No fraternization at school. And Marilla tries to get the sentence reduced, you know, a, a period of two weeks, perhaps, might I suggest. And it's like, no, forever. And it isn't even like a nice civilized conversation. Mrs. Barry, who I think I should call Mama B from now on, um, she is like so forceful. I must preserve my Diana from further intimacy with such a child right in front of her. Like she's not again, you know, this has been running through the series the whole time. You know, Anne isn't a real person. She's definitely a lesser than to a certain level of society and Mama B is part of that. Man, it was, she's like, my decision is final. Ugh. She was a strict mother in the books, I will say. This isn't yeah. out of character. Um, I've seen this happen in real life, like nowadays. You know, two kids who have, they make a mistake and one of the parents puts all the blame on the kid that isn't theirs uh, and throws all the evil of the world on that child and forbids them to see each other again. It's like the worst kind of parenting as far as I'm concerned. It's like, it's not effective. In this case, it would be temporarily because, you know, Diana's got no internet. She's got no Snapchat. She's got no way to communicate with other people. So she listens to her mother because she's very obedient and she was raised to be obedient. But nowadays it's, 
that's a hard sell when your kid, they're equally involved in something and you only punish one of them. I have to say, Book Marilla, I do remember this. Book Marilla does flash back at Mrs. Barry with the thought that I would hope I would raise my daughter better than to have three glasses of anything when she goes out to tea. Like accusing Diana of being a glutton and that's why she's so drunk. Oh. <laughs> but Ceres Marilla does not go there. Ceres Marilla, as everything falls apart, is obviously realizing that her great idea has ended up the worst idea ever. So her smugness at this great maternal idea of distraction and delight is not turning out for the best. And so Anne runs upstairs and sees Diana go away in the snow. <laughs> dramatic music playing, probably only for the audience, I would assume. <laughs> Um, so she's sobbing in her room. I had a little moment of ha, because walking in, you know, shin high snow with those long dresses must have been really hard. <laughs> so Mama B had as much difficulty getting through the lawn as anybody. You know, even though she was powered by anger. But poor Diana, her arms are like flailing about like, I don't want to leave. She was throwing a fit, like biggest fit, screaming no. And, you know, you can see that as through the bendy glass of Anne's window as they're leaving. Well, we have a tiny little vignette of Marilla downstairs um, not being able to deal with the situation. There's not any lines or anything, and I really don't have anything more to say about it, but it's a very good um, photographic moment um, kind of of despair. But mm -hmm. all she says later, when you open on the fireplace, she's darning a sock. Matthew's smoking. You know that always means that he is having a mental problem with something that he's wrestling with. It's been a trying day, says Marilla. And Matthew asks, do you ever think about Michael? So much would have been different if he hadn't. And then Marilla just interrupts him and says, yes, and packs up to go upstairs. And I still think that there is something dark about it. He must have killed himself or run away. I don't even know. Is he dead? Actually, we don't know if he's really dead or if that's the story they put around. Oh, I didn't think about that till this second. Oh, interesting. Well, there's obviously something sinister and dark that happened. But let's look at the timeline for a second. In that picture on the wall, Michael is the youngest. And Matthew looks to be about, what, seven? Oh, I think Michael's the older brother. Oh, I thought Michael was the baby. The reason I think Michael's the older brother is because... When Michael goes, the younger brother has to step up and take care of the farm. And that's why he had to leave school. Okay. That would support suicide. Why did I have it in my head that Michael was a baby? I don't know. Because I, I really do think that. And also, Marilla would have been closer in age to this brother, Michael. And they might have been more playmate confidant than Matthew and she. And so the loss would have been greater on her end, too. And so she would have had mm -hmm. to take care of her mother through whatever emotional wreckage that happened while simultaneously having a burden of great grief on herself that she couldn't express also. Hmm. Interesting. So I am going to put my bet on Michael being the older brother. So anyway, we, we do see his picture as Marilla goes up the stairs. There are three siblings. I don't know that we needed reminded, but there it is. And I'm very sad because I have to say for once, I think Matthew wanted to talk something out. Mm -hmm. And Marilla cut him off by leaving. For once, Matthew initiates a conversation and it's not like, you know, what's for tea? It's, it's a deeper conversation, and she shuts up. Marilla never shuts up. Marilla always has something to say, and it was a total role reversal. But does she have something to say all the time about something emotional? 
I don't know that Marilla does emotion very well. Obviously, she doesn't. So upstairs, Marilla yeah. is going to Anne. And I, of course, I'm wondering, those two candles that are in the sconces, do they stay on all night? I am very interested in that. Anyway, we don't we don't learn those details. But Marilla walks in to see little Anne sleeping it off. And I think <laughs> there is an echo here to Maud Montgomery, the author's life. Because, because Marilla looks down at Anne with the greatest of love and says, poor little soul, and covers her up and kisses her on the forehead, which, children, is all movies, everyday language for true love. If anyone kisses someone else on the forehead, it's real. Mm -hmm. I don't don't know who decided on it, but you can take that to the bank. Unless it's a mobster. (laughs) In which case it means something else. Entirely. The parallel that I'm seeing with the author Maud Montgomery's life is now Maud Montgomery grew up in the care of her grandparents in a house that was pretty devoid of affection. But one night, and she remembered this, I mean, 50 years after it had happened, she was about seven or eight and was staying the night with a cousin whose mother came up to say goodnight and check on the two little girls. This woman, the aunt, was not intellectually gifted or well thought of even necessarily just i say just but it's very important she was a motherly figure and she looked down at the two girls one of whom was only pretending to be asleep and said what dear little children and covered them up and lm montgomery's heart practically broke at the thought that her cousin had this every single day someone that felt that way about her and lm montgomery did not and never would it's very sad. And so when Marilla looked down and said to her, poor little soul, I am catching an echo of dear little child. Oh, yeah. Now that you say it, I agree with you. I was just thinking, you know, mother's love. That was mother's love right there. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, that was impressive. So the next scene opens. Of course, it's in the snow um, as they so often are. And at first I thought this was Marilla and Jerry at the barn. But as you come in a little further, you realize, no, it's Gilbert and Mrs. Kincannon over at the Blythe's house. She is very concerned and says, you're not going to go to school today? And he says, this is all he says, I feel like I should stay close. Mm-hmm. Oh. At school, Mr. Phillips has been told of the friendship ban and he makes Anne change seats. And I wonder what story has he been told? What story? I mean, he is very strict. So two little girls can't fraternize, but he can, evidently. <laughs> Good point. His, his exact words were, you are not to fraternize or exert undue influence. He says this to Anne. I don't think Mama B had to say anything except those very words. I think he's just repeating exactly what she said. Oh. You know, maybe she had to tell her the story just to, you know, get fill him in on the background. But he is doing exactly what that woman said. You are not to allow these two girls to sit together anymore. I don't want that orphan, you know, blah, blah. In that classroom, they tell Ruby that she has to switch places with Anne. And any other time in this series up until now, Ruby would have been delighted to be able to sit with Diana. But now... She looks terrified and sad. You know, she is so not wanting to switch places. She understands what 
you know, the feeling is that these two have for each other and they're being separated. Meanwhile, Josie Pye is just rolling her eyes and sliding her chair or sliding down the bench, I guess, a little farther away from Anne because, you know, Josie Pye isn't very nice. <laughs> so Anne and Diana meet in the supply room, which is evidently the home of illicit relationships. They part. <laughs> oh, do they part romantically and with great pathetic speeches. And it is one more kind of true love. Um, but they say things like, this is eternal farewell. And I have to say they sort of, they sort of like it. I mean, they don't like it. They're sort of reveling in the pathos of the situation. Um, they I, even use that word. Oh, pathos. Yes. Yeah. My favorite line was in this particular scene. And do you know how when they met, they kind of had to have a vow and stuff to make it official. But this particular eternal farewell, as Anne says, needs some type of ceremony, of course, because Anne's in charge. And she says, we need to speak the most pathetic language that we can think of. She directs. And then <laughs> Diana says, with these and thous? Like, that's how we get pathetic. <laughs> okay. And then they exchange locks of hair, which is very Victorian. It uh, mm -hmm. also appears in, you know, Little Women and all manner of other. Um, there's a hair museum here where you can visit the tributes of hair people have donated to their loved ones. Thus ends, at least for this episode, the friendship of Anne and Diana. It's very sad. Um, and Mr. Phillips has Anne deliver Gilbert's work to him. And he snapped his fingers at her. While she was clapping the erasers out the window. I mean, she was cleaning the erasers. The window's open with a log. And he snaps his fingers. His feet are on the desk. And he directs her to go take those to Gilbert. You know. He says he doesn't want him falling behind because he's his best student. Nice. Thanks. So here's Anne walking through the snow. It's her turn to do so. And Anne is mumbling to herself, why does everything happen to me? Life is so unfair. And then, of course, she's knocking way too much. She's making quite a bit of racket on the porch. And when Gilbert's dad opens the door, Anne realizes what Gilbert is facing at home. It's really taken her aback. And he says, I've heard nice things about you. So who? Mrs. Kincannon? No. Gilbert has told his father nice things about Anne. And then you see the Blythe charm when he says, what wonderful red hair. I know. My goodness. My heart just leapt. It was, I was like awing from the living room when that came on. Like, look, someone who appreciates your hair. Yeah. And I am kind of sad because he is obviously a shadow of his former self, but I would love to have known him in his prime. Mm -hmm. It sure sounds like Marilla did because he asks how she is mm. and if she's still feisty, he says. She sure is, though. She keeps it mostly inside. That's right. But he knew she was feisty. Mm -hmm. So she's always been feisty. Mm -hmm. We've learned that she is feisty and practical. That's what we've learned. <laughs> yes, by two people who knew them, you know, before something happened, mm -hmm. you know, earlier in their lives at some point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Gilbert comes around the corner. He's been chopping wood in the backyard, and he is properly horrified that his father is up out of bed, number one, and out in the freezing cold. That's going to make him cough more. So he's properly horrified. You know, oh, father, you need to go to bed. And he, <laughs> the dad does this thing where it's almost like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Ah, this fine lady has business with you. Ah. I'll let cute. you be. Yeah, I know. I saw that too. 
you crazy kids, do whatever you're going to do on this porch. And Gilbert thanks her for bringing them. And I think that he thinks she did it on her own. That was her idea. Even after Anne says that Mr. Phillips didn't want him to fall behind, I think Gilbert is still under the impression that Anne brought those on her own accord. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. And he, when she was knocking on the door, she was saying his name. over. That's the first time she said his name in quite a while. Oh. She's like knocking on the door. Gilbert, Gilbert Blythe, open this door. Da, da, da. Yeah, over and over again. And she actually talked to him nicely. You know, it wasn't that cold thing. Maybe he was just, I don't know, so happy to see her, I guess. Or was he putting that face on? Because now Anne knows his secret that nobody else knows. This thing that he, you know, keeps hiding from everybody. This trauma that's going on with his dad. You know, was he just trying to put the mask back on in front of her? I don't think so. I don't think that's his nature. He does say to her, if you're going to beat me in class, I want you to beat me fair and square. I know. It's very, it's a kind of nice little conversation. They both kind of, well, you know what? He doesn't have anything to work on. He's always been pretty nice. And, you know, if you Mm -hmm. think about it, he must be completely bewildered by this person because he's not privy to the backstory that we see from the fourth wall. Right. He does know about, he pulled her hair, she hit him with the slate, but surely that can't be all of it. Mm -mm. Uh, No, I know. I, yeah. But, and it's funny that he's maybe having those thoughts because I imagined a thought bubble over her head while she's walking off saying, uh, everyone has challenges, you know, that we just never see. And maybe he is a kindred spirit. Maybe that's me hoping (laughs) that she's having this realization, but I know she has the first part. Everybody has challenges that we don't see. Well, and of course, I wrote on my paper, well, <laughs> Whoa, talk about switching places. Because <laughs> I'm not usually the cursor. But no, like, you, know, you hold on to this grudge and then you find out, oh my, I have been the one. I am the one that's not very nice here. Uh, anyway, so that's where I think she is. So the next thing we see is a delightful little scene of Marilla and Anne sewing. Uh, Anne is making a piece of embroidery that says Kindred Spirits. I know, it's got two hearts, big red hearts next to the words, and they're attached by this chain of flowers, you know, reminiscent of her hats that she likes to make. (laughs) It's very lovely and very colorful and very bold. It's not the traditional, you know, samplers that kids her age would be making at all. And I think the plan is that she's going to give it to Diana, but since she can't give it to Diana, I bet Ruby would pass it on for her. Don't you think? Oh, yeah, definitely. And did you see Marilla's face? Because she still has that, I'm happy to share these motherly, loving situations with you because she's, you know, embroidering with her daughter. It's something that, you know, (laughs) every mother of the time probably did. And now it's her turn. Ah. And they have a little conversation about the end of this month's monthly flowering time where Anne says, I won't be emotional next time. And I wrote, yes, you will. (laughs) Yes, but she followed that up by saying there are far bigger worries in this world. It goes back to what just happened with Gilbert. Right. But yeah, she will be emotional. (laughs) It gets very complicated. And this is before the common uh, availability of ice cream. I know, right? What did they do? I can't even imagine. Eating parsnips does not seem to have the same appeal as eating a whole bag of Doritos. (laughs) No, do you sit down with a whole batch of scones and just take the whole 
think for yourself. I and know. a good listener, Susan has just explained the prevalence of scones through this whole entire series. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, indeed. It's a reoccurring theme. Scones as life. Ooh, that's you got a t-shirt. <laughs> so Jerry has the hard jobs. Return the boots, pick up the dress, deliver the button. Oh, that I seem to have just picked up by mistake, says Matthew. Um, and But you don't see that it's the button. You know, he's loading Jerry up. Jerry's getting ready to go off on the horse. And he tells him to bring the boots, plural, back. Because when he went into that shop, he didn't just buy one pair. He right. bought several pairs of boots. And he has to bring those back and get that money. And then go to the dress shop. But you don't see what he picks up. He grabs something out of his pocket and puts it in Jerry's pocket. So you don't see what it is. I mean, we know it's going to be, but you don't see it yet. I'm very sorry that Matthew didn't feel brave enough to go himself. I really am sorry. I know Jeannie's sorry for sure. Um, and Jerry doesn't know any different. He doesn't understand the undercurrent of sadness that Miss Jeannie has. Mm-mm. And so then Jerry hands her a button. Now, mm-hmm. I have a question about this. Okay. Is it the same button? Because if it, okay, so imagine she gave him the button she's had in her little box for 40 years, right? Yeah. And the very like week later, he brings that button back and gives it to her. That is actually not good. To me, that would mean no thank you. But she's happy, which leads me to believe it's a different button. He's kept oh, the original. Oh, it's totally button. a different button. I know, but I didn't understand. I was like, why isn't she sad? And it took me oh. a while to realize it's a different button. It's a completely mm-hmm. different button. I didn't get that. <laughs> like, Did it take you three scenes ahead to realize it? uh well and and then i went back i didn't even that's an aspect i didn't examine i don't know but yes it's a different button yeah it totally it looks like a different button it's the first one he gave her had like a little like a little tiny brass wire on it like to sew through i think and then this one was got the holes susan's attention to button detail is exemplary (laughs) So now we have Jerry riding back comedically with a large, giant, white-wrapped package through the snow. (laughs) Yeah, again, through the snow. It's, again, one of those scenes where it's beautifully framed. It's a still picture. And Jerry on the horse, the only thing you really see, because everything is kind of silhouette-y, because it is, again, dark outside. Not like nighttime dark, but cloudy dark. And Jerry and the horse right across with this big box with this huge red ribbon on it. It was very funny. Yes, equals comedy. Yes. Definitely. So Matthew cannot wait for Anne to see what might be the first wrapped present she'd ever gotten. Honestly, she sees the box and starts crying. I don't really think anyone's ever given her a wrapped present before in her whole entire life. And um, don't you think that giving a gift is way better? I do. Like when you know you got the right thing and and you're anticipating them opening it. I mean, and when Anne looked back at Matthew after she saw what was in the box, I started to cry. And so did she. And so did she. He fulfilled the wish of her heart. I'm so glad I had taken the tissues out back in the dress shop because I needed them again. Tear territory over here. Man. So Anne comes downstairs and reveals the dress. It sure does have a lot of details that her other dresses didn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, you've gone and spoiled that child, says Marilla. But she's happy. She's not mad. She's full of admiration for the way that Anne looks. And then mm-hmm. Matthew says, she's not a child anymore. I know. I actually marked that as one of my favorite lines right there. You've gone and spoiled the child. She's not a child anymore. So, yeah, it said Diana's father opening the door for her thing. I know. It's the whole becoming a woman thing. So he knew what was going on. The, uh, you know, 
laundry. So Marilla notices that Matthew has a button off your best Sunday shirt, and she's really irritated at him. And that didn't register with me that he had taken a button off his best Sunday shirt to give to her until, I don't know, two more watches later. Oh. I just thought, what does this mean? Like, he's falling apart. I didn't even get it. So obviously, sometimes you need things pointed out to you because I didn't get it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, or you just need to be gifted with, you know, attention to button detail. <laughs> I guess so. So Anne feels so proud of her new dress, her new station as a young lady being escorted out of the house on her father's arm. She gives a big sigh of happiness. And the last shot is the happy family in the snow. I know. And can I say... It is now sunshiny. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, of course it is because the detail in this show is so good. This particular episode, there's this stuff we didn't even see, I bet. I bet this is the one that they totally high-fived each other about making, you know, perfect. It was perfection. It was perfection. There was even a little bit of imperfection, which only made it that much more perfect. So this one gets 10 out of 10 cordials. Oh, yeah. Easily. There's no, there was not even a doubt. I didn't, there, I wasn't going to point anything. 10. Perfection. The story's all tied together with a similar string. Ah. <laughs> even, I mean, there was like different storylines, different plot lines going through the whole thing and they all work together. Oh, just really beautifully. Even visually with the theme of the, the clouds and the snow. I, man. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. box with the ribbon on it, could it have been more special? I mean, you and I have gotten gifts our whole life, but if I saw a box that looked like that, I would start to get, like, super excited. I don't care what's in it. Miss Jeannie and and Miss Vivian knew how special this customer was. Mm-hmm. And I don't oh. mean Anne. No. <laughs> That's true. There was a lot of detail on that dress, wasn't there? There was, like, embroidery at the waist, and then there was embroidery at the neckline. And what's that fabric called? It's, like... It's got the dots on it, like they're raised, like little embroidered dots all over the whole thing. Is it dotted Swiss? Maybe. I'm, I was killing myself. I'm like Googling dotted fabric and that's not it. I mean, I Googled everything that came to mind and I couldn't. You might be right. Dotted Swiss. And earlier when Marilla was going to make her a dress out of the mm-hmm. brown, but Anne had said, oh, if it's blue or green. And so, you know what? They picked it right. They, they got her a green dress. Mm-hmm. With a lot of blue in it. So that was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. And I bet it looked amazing on her with her gray eyes. I don't really have anything that stood out to me. I mean, if the worst that happens is that the sink is too full of blood for me, well, that's a pretty good episode. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. So did you make a snack? I uh, did not make a snack. I finished reading The Blue Castle. (gasps) Oh, do tell. Um... I, you know, I can see why somebody would like it. It just, uh, it never made up in my mind for its slow beginning. I, I didn't, I needed to become emotionally invested earlier than I did. I see. Now, what if you had read it when you were younger? I wouldn't have got it at all if I were younger. Oh, There's you a wouldn't. lot of, um, like subtle control issues that her family has that you would not even register as a young person, I don't think. Oh, okay. Well, and as a matter of fact, this isn't even a children's book. This is an adult romance novel. This isn't oh. for children at all. So I see. When I was, uh, I want to say about 12, <laughs> there was a book I read, and it, I don't even think it's, it's not a great book. <laughs> and I just kept reading it over and over again because there was a couple scenes, and it was a romance novel. 
I just got all excited, but it wasn't like, you know, bodice ripping. It was very G rated. Um, it was called Aloha means goodbye. Okay. Yeah. And it stuck with me. So I, you know, and it was my favorite book at the time. I read it over and over again. So I wonder if you were younger, like, you know, preteen or something, if, if that would have been registered to you as being a much better book. No telling. I did want to like it, but you know, honestly, I don't even like all the Anne of Green Gables books. So. <gasps> Gasp. Smelling salts. Stat. Well, there's things about sequels that I like, and then there's things that I don't like. And some of the sequels seem to be stretching too far. So um, that is what it is. I always well, like seeing my favorite characters and other things, but, you know, some of them don't rise to the level of, say, books two and three, which I really loved. So, yeah. Okay. I'll accept that. It was a business for her. That's how she made her income. So, you know, a lot of them are her just working. You know what I mean? Maud working. Right. Not rather than creating. Well, I have to say, I went off book for this one, just like Moira Wally Beckett did for this episode. And I made Anne with a martini. <laughs> I started with Royal Anne cherries and I made it two ways, gritty and pretty. The gritty one was with chocolate vodka and the pretty one was with um, amaretto. And I marinated them for like two weeks. Nice. I know. They were so unbelievably delicious. I, I made two, but you weren't around. So <laughs> guess what happened to them? Do Let's you know see. you can make the, um, the one that you soaked in amaretto? I don't know. I don't know how amaretto would go in an aviation cocktail, but there's a bourbon soaked cherry that is part of that recipe that sits in the bottom of the glass. Oh, well, I filled the glass up with a lot of cherries because I like, um, cocktails that double as snacks. Oh dear. <laughs> so I even like skewered some, um, uh, what are they? Bing cherries that are available now. Mm -hmm. So good. Um, and so I could have a lot of snacking cause the marinated canned ones, they don't look too pretty, but they're at the bottom of the glass, which I just sent you a picture by the way. Okay. Nope. I don't have it. I mean, I just, oh, there it is. Ooh, that does look pretty. Haha. <laughs> it's in a flamingo glass. So cute. I know. I love those. It's very not Anne, but it is pink and she does like pink even if she can't wear it. So <laughs> there's my stretch on the flamingos. <laughs> very, very cute. Yeah, it was delicious. I wish you could have joined me. The chocolate one was my favorite, the gritty. Why did you call it gritty? Because it's darker. Oh. Because okay. you know how this show, there's like the, you have the pretty and versions the book and the 80s version and then this one is often described as gritty you know and darker so i chose Ooh. chocolate vodka because queen Anne cherries are the cherry of chocolate covered cherries oh see talk about layers and layers even your snack has layers i know this is like the most brilliant thing i can possibly do and i will not even attempt anything more brilliant <laughs> but darn if i'm not gonna i have a lot of cherries i'm, I'm gonna make that some more all right well i do not have a lot of links for this one. I have um, the Museum of Menstruation. There's a specific link and it's called Advice for Girls and it's from the 1890s. They've got a whole article about the history of advice that was given to young ladies in print form. 
to inform them about what was about to happen. So that will do it for our coverage of Anne with an E, episode five. We would be delighted to hear what you think of episode five or in fact any episode or anything we ever talk about on our biographical episodes. Just get in touch with us on our Facebook page or talk to Susan on Twitter by searching for The History Chicks with an X. Or you can send us an email at chicks at thehistorychicks.com. We hope to see you soon for Anne with an E, Episode 6. Thanks for listening. Bye. You are-